This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life. Become an agent for other intelligences. And begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of The Inner Lives of Fungi with Sophie Strand. Today we're going to be talking about fungi and... If you've been tuning into the cultural zeitgeist these days, you'll probably have noticed that mushrooms and fungi are becoming quite the rage. Every day I hear metaphors about the wood wide web or how we're all just like the fungi and mycelium, connected by invisible strands. It seems that something very magical about this kingdom of life has gripped our collective imagination, and I am all for it. I mean, after all, we owe our lives to the fungi. Without them, we'd have no plants, no trees, no food, no animals, no life. You can say goodbye to chocolate, wine, beer, kombucha, yogurt, even baked bread. All the good things. I don't know where I would be without all that stuff. And so it's kind of interesting that despite their burgeoning popularity, science has barely scratched the surface of mapping and understanding the hidden world of the fungi. The more we learn, the more they baffle our minds the more that they warp our understanding of what is even possible. They've been seen to digest and filter toxic radiochemical waste. We've used their behavior to help us design complex urban transportation networks. They produce thousands of substances that aren't found in any other life forms, some of which can be used to heal mental illness and chronic disease. And their prolific exchange networks with the plant roots are like our stock exchange networks on steroids. They essentially are the matter that stitch together ecosystems, sequester carbon, drive global and nutrient cycles, and uphold the world's biodiversity. They've also exhibited slightly more troubling behaviors that I hope they don't begin to do to us humans. They have been seen to take over ants' nervous systems and hijack their behaviors to create these very freaky zombie-like ants. So yeah, fungi. Fascinating, weird, magnificent, and I resonated a lot with a phrase that Merlin Sheldrake wrote in his book, Entangled Life, which said that the fungi are the go-betweens that inhabit the boundary of life and non-life. In short, the entire way that this kingdom sees and lives its experienced life world is so entirely different to anything else on this planet. And it's critical that we understand it better because they do quite literally underpin all of life. This is why I am thrilled to share with you today Sophie Strand, whose poetry quite literally lightens up my day. And some of you might know her as one of the most brilliant rising poets and writers on everything ranging from ecology to myth, mycelium, and animism. With Sophie, we'll traverse the terrain of fungal fermentation, compost heaps, deviant animal sex. Yep, you heard that one right. Living with disability, Jesus and the fungal gods. It's a good one today on Life Worlds. So, as always, thank you for listening. 
Here's Sophie Strand from her Riverside home in the Hudson Valley. You have such a gift of eloquence and fire and a way of transmitting and conveying your relationship to the natural world that I haven't seen in any other living writer, to be honest. So it is absolutely an honor to have you here. And there's so many places we can start at, right? Because we're we're talking about these multidimensional living ecosystems. And I think where I'd like to start is asking you about your apprenticeship to the living world, the symbiosis that you've created for yourself in your lifetime, whereby you are so enmeshed in a landscape that you're you're speaking with the voices of the land. And I'll I'll start by reading one quote to kind of set the scene from one of your essays. And then I want to get into that. So you write, the wild animals in our forest taught me how to forage, collaborate with other species, how to eat the sun, how to shimmy through thorns and dense thickets. I tended to attract the big guys, black bears, mountain lions, black widows, rattlesnakes, wolves, bald eagles, albino stags. The lessons these animals taught me were uncanny and transformative. Each one deserves its own book. So please speak to that. What do you mean by animals teaching you lessons? Hmm. Well, first, I want to say that the honor and the excitement is mutual. And when I read your writing and came across your work, I felt this immediate prickle of kinship, of a deep, like, shared fluency. Um, so I'm very happy to be here. And the little snippets of your writing I've gotten to read have made me want a whole book. So side note. Um, to answer your question... Hmm. Well, I definitely was blessed to grow up with parents who encouraged a kind of animist understanding, um, a belief that everything was alive and not alive in the same way as me, and not alive in a way that was precious or necessarily safe. <laughs> um, so I do want to honor the fact that I was given a, a grounding and an understanding of that pretty early. But I also think that for me, I I experienced severe abuse as a very young child, which inoculated me with a distrust of white men <laughs> and of adults and human beings. And so I was lucky to grow up in the woods on a practical farm where we had, you know, dogs and cats and domesticated geese, but we also rehabilitated, you know, possums and raccoons. And there were plenty of wild animals coming in and out of our yard all the time. Um, and I had an experience growing up that the much more trustworthy information was coming from my interactions with animals and plants and insects than it was that you could never trust what adults were teaching you, that they might have good information that could be useful, but they were not trustworthy. And there was something about my deep longstanding relationships with certain types of beings that felt much more trustworthy. Um, so I would say that's the short answer. I don't know. I've always expected that this happens for other people, but lately having talked to so many people, I feel like perhaps it doesn't. I've always had periods of my life that are under the zodiac of a certain being where they show up repeatedly and in ways that are so loud that they have to get my attention. And when that happens enough, I start to really try and understand what that being is trying to initiate me into. 
Um, and yeah, sometimes they're very sexy creatures. And most lately, they've been decidedly strange, like a woodchuck and potato bugs. So I, I definitely don't try and choose the beings. I can't. They choose me. That is such a beautiful way of putting it, that you're under the zodiac of other beings, this constellation that's spinning around in the sky. That's a really interesting way of saying it. Uh, which of them feels the most alive in you right now to share? Maybe a story or two? Because again, as you say, for people who maybe haven't had that experience, they're like, what are they even talking about? <laughs> well, I'll go backwards and then I'll do one that's actually very recent. Back to begin with, one that feels like it's still moving through my body still being metabolized even two years from the beginning of it was I at sort of quarantine I started having very intense encounters with woodchucks also known as groundhogs where they would approach me um, they would come sit with me at my sit spot they would charge me um, anywhere I went it wasn't even in my specific neighborhood I would travel across the river to another town they would find me other people started to make note of it and I've had this relationship with woodchucks where They've taught me a lot about self-sufficiency and humor and physical humor and reconnecting with parts of me that I had deemed to be not respectful, but perhaps are the most important parts of me. So I, I definitely didn't want to see myself in the mirror of Woodchuck, but that's ultimately what's <laughs> happened. And they've had a lot to teach me. <laughs> However, it did also feel like it was priming me for this moment that happened about three or four months after the start of these encounters, which is I was driving on the highway in the middle of a storm and at the dividing line it was a you know incredibly busy highway there was a rain soaked woodchuck that wasn't going to be able to get either way across without being hit and without even thinking cuz i'd just been primed towards woodchucks for for months i you know threw my car into park jumped out went like this and the woodchuck jumped into my arms so it's one of those moments where you reach out and something else says yeah i recognize you you've done the work and jumped into my arms. And it was like electric. I can't even explain holding this sodden wet. It was, it was such an intense somatic experience to hold this, which I can run across a highway and put it into the woods where it ran off. And it kissed me on my hand as it went right next to a cut, which meant, meant I needed like months of rabies shots, which is a whole other thing. But, but then I could touch any animals I wanted, which was part of actually that was actually part of what I thought the medicine was, which was I get encountered, I get contacted, quote unquote, by animals a lot. And this encounter particularly gave me the impetus to get the rabies shots that then legitimized me actually, you know, touching and being touched by wild animals all the time, which I've done ever since. Wow. And, and I remember in the story of the woodchuck, you wrote this thing where you suddenly thought maybe we're not the main character and maybe my entire life was just here to get that woodchuck across the road. And I've had those feelings sometimes where it's like, maybe I was just here to get this animal to safety. Maybe I was just here for something else and someone else other than myself. And so there's this kind of humility and deconstruction of the anthropocentric narrative that happens when you realize that maybe you're just here to serve another creature and maybe it's just one woodchuck, right? <laughs> exactly. And that, and I, I, you know, I think we're really paralyzed right now 
um, by this sense of global responsibility, being responsible for other nations, other people, countries away, whole rainforests we've never even visited. But it undercuts the importance of a direct kinship where you take care of one being you know intimately in your local ecosystem. Like, I think that there's, we have this very simplistic anthropocentric idea that, you know, smaller things are less important than big things. Smaller populations are less important than bigger populations. But the truth is that we can see in old mythologies, you know, in plenty of Celtic fairy tales, you know, it's the smallest being that ultimately grants the biggest boon. And that's something that I've been really thinking about lately, mythologically, in terms of folklore, and also personally, which is it's usually like a mouse or a fly that you do a good favor for that ultimately ultimately comes back and, you know, grants you the sovereignty over a kingdom or gives you your beloved. Um, so I think that it's important to, you know, to kiss the frogs sometimes and know that they could be a prince. That also kind of makes me think about a lot of your work. I don't want to jump too far ahead, um, but your work with mycelium and how much those mycelium have affected you because they are the understory and they are the invisible, weird, chthonic, goopy kind of worlds. And and this idea of like non-sexy heroes or just like local lo- local heroes or the ones that are in your backyard. And, and I'm sure this comes up a lot for you in conversation as well. Like, well, you know, I'm I don't live close to nature and so I can't have the kinds of stories that you have because I don't even think there are woodchucks. And and actually your invitation here is, no, there will be some tiny form of life close to you, no matter where you live in the world, and sink into that story. And, and, the, and the link to myth is so interesting. I never thought of it that way, but you're right. Like so many of those myths have these little creatures that just point the, you know, the character along their way. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot along the lines of disability and ecology and disabled ecologies. And I've been thinking about how I've been taking this course kinship at Advaya um, that I'm also a speaker in. Um, I saw that you're a part of it too. <laughs> and I've been thinking about how ableist most of the talks have been. You, ama- amazing and nourishing, but that this type of enchantment, this kind of easy kinship, these kinship practices are not available to people who are disabled or who are disabled by trauma, like serious, serious trauma. And that a lot of these things are at quite a remove. Um, and so I've been thinking about just speaking of like tutelary deities and like land, like, like local heroes and what can we do even if we're not near nature, you know, for the disabled person who perhaps can't leave bed, your body is an ecosystem. You know, you can make kin with your own disability. Like you can think about the disrupted gut biome that you're working with. You know, this, I've, this is very lived and real for me. Recently, I've been pretty bedbound. Um, I go in and out of phases, and it's you know I can't necessarily go to my sacred spots, but I have to sink into the complex, intertangled, sometimes beneficent, sometimes capricious microbial world inside of me, um, and then that can also be somewhere that I can begin to think about ecology <laughs> and kin. So, how would you advise someone? Um to tap into the ecology of their own body, let alone their own place? I think that it gets pretty funky. I think that we spend a lot of time um, sterilizing our bodies to hide the reality of the information they're giving us. But the truth is that in other cultures, for many, many years, 
And now we're arriving back at these same medical standards. You know, it's the full circle, which is you could tell a lot about your body by the way your sweat smelled at different times charting the rhythms of your body with full moons, with hormonal cycles. You could tell a lot about your body by what, what your tongue looked like, what you were smelling in general, tastes in your mouth, um, the, what you were um, attracted to, what, what your appetite was guiding you towards, um, how sun felt on you. And I think actually we can begin to think of our, ourselves as our bodies as instruments that have been over millions of years evolutionarily tuned, made into a photo negative of ecosystems. So your body is actually, adaptations are really photo negatives of ecosystems. Like they are ways that we learn to fit into an ecosystem very, very slowly over many, many generations. And so your body knows exactly how to be in an embedded relationship with where it is. And so I think our bodies hold all sorts of information for us. So sometimes I think, so sometimes I'm lying down and I can't move. So I'm going to try and think of 10 smells that I can smell just from where I am. What part of my body feels sensitive? Like start thinking of yourself as a territory, <laughs> a territory that is, has, is being played by weather. Something that's also really struck me about your writing is you've learned the names of so many things. Like you're a total biology ecology geek. <laughs> you, <laughs> I am a geek. You are, you know, and, and 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 that's why I love your writing because you bring in the names. And I remember somewhere that, or maybe it was in a, in a call we had previously where you mentioned that you greet everyone who's within a 20 mile radius of your home. And maybe you could describe that practice. Like what did it mean to learn the names of the people around your home, the people, the the more than human people, the natural people, the animal people, the plant people. Like, what was that process? And then what is your practice to kind of embed yourself in a place through through knowledge? So I would say that this, you know, I was always interested in learning the names of beings that I had a relationship with and not the like taxonomical Linnaean, you know, colonial extractive name, but like a name that denoted kinship, whatever name, like, you know, the herbalist told me, I felt, my friend said, you know, this is what we commonly call doc, like big leaf, you know. Um, and so I think I've always been trying to get more familiar with my friends and um, for many, many years. But there came a point where I was really, really overworked and the work was mainly on my computer. <laughs> and I was living out in the middle of, the no of nowhere, working all the time, writing all these books under someone else's name, ghostwriting them. And I needed, I wasn't feeling like I was getting to experience that kinship that was so lived and innate when I was walking and hiking all the time. So instead, when I would wake up in the morning before I went to work, I would summon by name every being I could remember. And then this began to work alongside in a very synchronous way. An herbal apprenticeship I was doing, you know, my love of mycology and mushrooms and fungi. And so I started to learn more names and develop more relationships. And it was a way of actually weaving me back into to family. That it was a moment when I felt very abstracted and alone. I was in a very... Um, complicated relationship that had isolated me from my friends and my family. And suddenly I was weaving myself in this anarchic, more than human way back into kinship. But in a very practical way, 
every morning, I still do this. And in fact, it's much more intense now. It's so long now. It's like a mantra. Um, Every morning I wake up, usually with the dawn, a little bit before, and I make my coffee and I sit and then I summon by name, you know, in indigenous um, folkloric beings, landforms, microbes I know, infections I've had, <laughs> ancestors, both human and non-human, um, you know, secular saints of mine, um, plants, invasive species. I summon every being that I want to know is part of my decision-making process. And I think that's the most important thing about it is by the time I enter into my, you know, public persona of making decisions, paying bills, you know, doing podcasts, I know that everything I say, every decision I make is not bounded by the fiction of individuality. It implicates and affects a whole vasculature of kinship. I love that you like you call in your posse. I mean, I, I want one of your friends who's an artist to sit with you one morning and note down all the names and to do a painting of you surrounded by everyone who you call in. I, that would just be... I love that. I... <laughs> you have to send us one of your friends right now. And um, I... I think that that is a practice that, you know, for anyone who's listening, like just trying that um, has been transformational for me. And I know that um, I've shared it after even we spoke with a few people and they're like, that is phenomenal. And I want to try that practice that this girl recommended. Do you mind me asking who are like, who are two beings that come up? Like, cause I also think different beings, beings show up in this practice. Yeah. Two that come up for me. It depends where I am. Um, the last home that I knew really, really well, which was the last place I felt truly grounded. It was longer ago than I would like it to be, but um, that's just been the situation recently. It's the squirrel. Oh my God. Squirrels are, oh, they have just, uh, they're such incredible creatures and they're feisty and cheeky and intelligent and lithe and acrobatic and sort of territorial. So the squirrel is always very present and the oak tree because of the food that it brings to an ecosystem and how throughout the year it's bringing all these different forms of life and the contortion of, of the shape of the branches. And those were two that were very present for me. That's so beautiful also because, you know, they've shown how intimately wedded the mast years of acorn production and squirrel populations are coordinated. Oh. And so they're actually like in, in a slightly more abstract way than say lichen, they're very symbiotically united, the squirrel and the oak. So that's really beautiful. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really have a squirrel without an oak tree or vice versa. Thank you for making me see that. Um, so I'm going to ask you about fungi and I'm going to ask you about your relationship to the mycorrhizal networks of fungi, the mushrooms, through the lens of this um, ailment that you've had in your own body, which you've shared, and you're absolutely welcome to share a little bit of that, of course, whatever you would like. Um, and then sort of mythologically, like I remember you wrote this thing once that um, the mycelium are like angels. So describe to us your way of seeing this whole kingdom. Well... I have loved fungi and mushrooms for a long time, since well before I knew that they were, you know, the same thing. <laughs> I love rootlets. I love mushrooms as being these kind of um, mutable beings, sometimes good, sometimes bad, very like fairies. And it was only in college when I was very interested in mycorrhizal networks 
and trying to <laughs> mulch Deleuze and Guattari's very arid idea of rhizomatic philosophy with actual ecology, um, that I was also diagnosed with a connective tissue disease. So I was finding out that the connective tissue of soil and of ecosystems is fungi, and that the very thing that was suffering within my own body was connective tissue. So what I often share with people is, you know, our ailments, our pains, our sorrows are often portals pointing us out of the human into a um, empathy and understanding with another being and another being's experience. So while my condition may not have a cure, I can, you know, continue to treat it by, you know, advocating for the research and the love and the understanding of mycorrhizal fungi. Um, so for me, that has been the connective tissue, has been connective tissue. Um, I love fungi. I do. I'm a little worried right now about how sexy they've become and simplified. And I've actually been feeling a little upset lately when I talk about them, like, oh, no, which is, I think it's important to say that one, they're not here for us to extract them and feed them to pollution and make them into fashion products. <laughs> and I think that there's they've been wedded to a kind of techno-narcissism that I'm very allergic to. And also the fact is that there are um, 3.8 million different species of fungi and we've only identified 144,000. So I think we have to begin from humility, which is if there are 3.8 million different types of fungi, there are 3.8 million different types of fungal stories and ideas and modes and there's not one fungal story and if we don't even know a fraction of that like if we know the tiniest sliver of those beings how can we pretend to really understand them so we have to start from an uncertainty we know certain things about them we mostly don't know about them you know they live in the soil the darkness of the soil and they have a lot in common with dark matter which is they constitute us but we can hardly see them and hardly understand them <laughs> I have lately been feeling very hesitant about talking about them because they've become so, they've become such a product <laughs> and such a simplified product, which is they help trees communicate. They will help us clean up pollution when, when the truth is that a lot of these micro remedial projects are largely um, publicity um, events, which is you actually can't feed these fungi to giant pollution um spheres and then expect them to behave like they did in a test tube um and then they have very different behaviors and wants and we have to ask them what they want more than telling them what they should eat and do so i fungi can do a lot of things but maybe that shouldn't be what we're focusing on <laughs> i i admire you for your territoriality like it's true what you say i agree with you it's and it gets to the core of this podcast, which is, um, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a sec, but what is animism and then how does it affect our actions in the world? And as you say, like when we become utilitarian with another species, just like we, when we become utilitarian with another human, we're no longer respecting its fundamental intrinsic desires or wants or ways of being. And yet they are incredibly healing. And so the question is, how can we work with the fungi in right relationship? And I, I think one of the things you said once, right, which was flood the world with a biodiversity of stories. So it's not like, oh, let's just like replace the myth of, you know, choose your, choose your element of the world. Um, no, flood it in with other stories. So I'm wondering if, if you're taking your advice in this way, 
how could you or people who are allied with you, like myself, flood the world with stories and ways of being with the fungi that would um, pull them away from that sort of uh, usage by techno-utopianism and the climate movement? I think that thinking with fungi is more interesting than using them. And I think that this is one of the reasons why psilocybin has become a complicated terrain for me to speak about and within, which is, you know, psilocybin grows on cow shit. And I live in a country that is built on abusing cows <laughs> and torturing cows. And I, I think that it's important that, you know, Alexis Shotwell, who's an amazing anthropologist, talks a lot about how with food, with lifestyle choices, we're very simplistic. We, you know, have a very straightforward object ontology. Like, I know what this object is. This is good or bad. But the truth is objects and beings come to us through webs of relationship. And I think with psilocybin, I want to say you should be very careful taking psilocybin if you are not in right relationship with cows. <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. like things like that that I would like to comp complicate, which is fungi are relational. They, 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 they live between species. They are interrogative. I call them angels because the ancient word for angel in both Greek and um, Hebrew and Middle English all mean messenger, which is they come from the realm beyond, the other world, the imaginal, the underworld, the mythic realm, you know, whatever you want to call it. And they come to bring advice for us uh, on above ground, the surface dwellers as the Haida um, indigenous people would say, you know, the people who, who don't know really what's going on. <laughs> um, cause we're just on the surface. And I think the fungi mythically thinking with them have information for us about how to act that has very little to do with our human aliveness, but with the general aliveness. So the story I'm interested in is we start to look at all of the connections that bring fungi into being that constitute them. How how do we become more culpable the more involved we become with them? How do they teach us to become involved in general aliveness rather than in this very narrow idea of human survival? How would you advise someone to approach a fungi in, in this way, in the way that you've learned and cultivated? Like if someone's starting from scratch, where do they even begin? They, they're like, okay, that sounds really wonderful. I want to try that. What do I do? <laughs> well, here's the thing. And we all, fungi are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. So it's also interesting to just figure out which fungi are in your neighborhood. There are some polypores that are active all year round. You know, they grow like conchs out of trees. Um, lichen is the composite of bacteria and yeast and fungi. So any kind of emerald green, viridian, little spiky scale is, you know, a fungal being. And one very simple way I tell people is, you know, fermentation is a fungal story. And fermentation, you know, as it relates to alcohol and also fermented food, may be a driver of, of the choices of civilization. You know, we can really tie together moments where civilization blooms with fermentation events, with um, breweries and beer vats and with um, the domestication of yeasts. And so, and yeasts are single-celled fungi. So sometimes I tell people that the very easiest way to begin an animist, intimate, you know, anarchic kind of um, experience with fungi is to begin fermenting. And a very easy way to do this is to make mead with honey and water and a jar that you close and shake. 
for a week every day. And you will make the oldest, one of the oldest forms of, of a fermented beverage. That's how you make mead? <laughs> yeah, it's that easy. You can look it up online. Wow. But you become a fungal accomplice. And I think that my favorite way of thinking about fungi is let's be their accomplice. And, and let's be their accomplice in, in digesting this um, patriarchal, colonial, capitalist structure from the outside. Um, they, you know, they, they both like civilization and also as connected with anarchic figures like Dionysus, like to disband civilization. So they have a lot of tools. I read that book, The Immortality Key, which is kind of fascinating, uh, very trippy book, but incredibly well-researched. Speak a little bit to what you just shared, that throughout time when we were working with the fungi, when we were fungal accomplices, accomplices, accompli, at that point in time, <laughs> we were, <laughs> I don't even know what the plural is, uh, that we were fermenting, brewing, concocting, and that that parallel changes in our own way of being as a human society. And then obviously Dionysus probably fused into that because he was obviously the god of of wine and of festivities and also of transformation. Uh, touch on that. I would actually love to learn more. I haven't thought about it. Well, there's a lot of reason to believe that small scale fermentation exists for a long time before, so before civilization and sessile hierarchical civilizations really bloom. But it's when it becomes deeply coordinated and mass produced that we begin to also see mass graves of mass executions. You know, the minute we see um, I think Brian Murrescu writes a little bit about this. The Dawn of, of Everything, the David Graeber book that everyone's raving about, also includes a bunch of instances of this, which is you see a lot of beer making. You also see a lot of mass execution. So those two things seem to arrive at the same time. And so one thing I always say is we've been problematically inculcated with this idea that every story we're living is a human story. But civilization may not be a purely human story. It may be a fungal story and just a, a yeast story, you know, because there are many different types of fungi. Um, and that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. They, you know, they've wedded themselves to us. They've symbiotically merged with us. They digest food outside of us that we could never digest in our own bodies. In a certain way, they're a surrogate stomach. Um, but they also open up other modes of consciousness. You know, drunkenness is, is, is a completely different mode of consciousness. And the microbiome that's created by fermented food creates a whole different, you know, gut biome neurobiology. Um, so there is something about fermentation that perhaps just like the carpenter ant being thought by cordyceps changes us into a mouthpiece for, um, a very invisible being, <laughs> um, and it is, it is interesting to really look at Dionysus is a good figure because Dionysus is, is definitely more associated with the anarchic kind of fermentation. Like there's, there's an idea. The scholar Carl Karenyi notes this. I also think Brian Murrescu brings this up, but there's reason to believe that the first fermentation events happened by accident, like a hive, a honeybee hive was in a rain soaked tree and it was hot and it fermented. And people found it and thought it was like a miracle. And so Dionysus is more, you know, he's never called a theos. He's never called a human god. He's always called a daemon. So he's always kind of part of that natural process of fermentation, um, that animal-like behavior. He inspires women to break their bounds, to loose their hair, to eat um, raw flesh and behave like lions. So Dionysus is kind of anti-civilization. But as you see 
fermentation take hold as a practice, it becomes more domesticated. And um, then you have a figure like Jesus, who, you know, fully exits the virtuous cycle of decay and refruit. You know, when Dionysus dies and he's torn apart um, by the Titans and he's mulched back into the earth. So he actually is a very like fungal god in that he fruits up, he addresses the very specific political and ecological climate. You know, he's whenever he appears in a new city, he's freshly adapted. He always looks different. He's always, you know, very particularly tailored towards a time period. You know, he comes from that underground mythic mycelium of vegetal gods, but then he's very particularly a mushroom of a certain place. And when he when he dies, he's mulched composted back into the ground to nourish the soil from whence he came. But you see someone like Jesus interrupting that virtuous cycle of decay when his body disappears. He never goes back to the ground. What does it mean um, mythologically in that sense then that he didn't go into his process of decay? I think that a great example for me is we can look at the fossil fuel today as being, um, Roland Sheldrake says this in his book, Entangled Life, as being a, a, um, the product of a fungal absence. So in the Carboniferous period, all of these woody materials suddenly developed and there was no white rot to break them down and make them into soil and recycle them. So what they actually did is they fell, didn't decay, compacted, suffocated other plants and animals and, and created a clim climate event. Um, actually dropped the temperature. And it was one of the biggest climate change events we've had until now. Um, and they they got compacted and then slowly, slowly white rot developed and started to break down dead matter and learned how to eat wood. Um, but that material still existed, that fungal absence. And that fungal absence, that compacted Mesozoic ferns are feeding the anthropocentric ecocidal death spiral right now. And so these moments where we don't decay, where we don't honor that, that, that decay is the womb of real of life, <laughs> um, create real problems. And so for me, Jesus pretends like you can disappear the body, but in fact, he creates this body that doesn't break down and that continues to inspire colonialism and sexism and witch hunts and all sorts of prejudices and issues. That's so interesting. From what I've read from some of the Old Testament, Jesus was very witchy himself in terms of herbs and metaphors that he used, and he was very vegetal. And so you have this very vegetal organic being and um, figure who ended up becoming a saint in his own way. And then it's really interesting how you said, and yet he plugged himself out of that decomposition cycle. He didn't, though. And I think the, both of the books I've written make the argument that you deracinate a magician, a storytelling magician from his Galilean ecology, where all his stories are really about Galilean ecology. And then you translate him into the language of the very empire that killed him and expect his story to still make sense. So I would argue that the people who corrupted and interrupted his story are empire, are the Romans. So would you say that, I, I'm sure you've read books by Robert Bringhurst, um, and he speaks, yeah, and he has this amazing book, Tree of Meaning, and he compares stories and myths and languages to forests and trees and branches, and also this notion that we carry myths and stories like they, they, they hop along with us. They actually use us to perpetuate themselves. So what does it mean when you see 
a human society is a basically being used by the stories to continue themselves. Um, so this idea of story being something that's very rooted in place. And he says something before about Dionysus, right? That he makes good compost. He is a character that goes back into the soil and breaks down and feeds and then sprouts up again in new ways. Um, and that there's this underground mycelium of gods and of stories. And, and I want to ask you about that. But it seems like if you're not embedding yourself in the right place for a story, um, that's when things go a little bit wacky, right? If you're not in the soil or the land that story should be held in, um, if, you're, if you've deracinated a story, uh, the natural order of things starts to break down. Well, yeah, and there's also another, I don't know if you've come across the work of Sean Kane. Sean Kane's a good friend of Robert Bringhurst, and I'm not sure who inspired who. I think it's probably a lot of cross-pollination. Um, but they both write a lot about the Haida and reference each other both a lot. And Sean Kane writes this great book called The Wisdom of the Myth Tellers, where he talks about how there's this kind of fetishistic approach to indigenous stories where they seem very simplistic and cute because we translate them into English and, you know, the woodpecker said, you know, and turned around. But the truth is that if you actually look at them in their native land and in their native language, they're giving you very specific, real information about like what time to harvest berries, how, how to honor the ocean when it gives you the salmon. Like they're mythic, but they're also incredibly practical. <laughs> um, and we rob them of their practicality and of their, their blood, their life, how they live in us and through us, through our actual tending of the land by um, pretending like they're just cute stories that we can um, put in an anthology and read a country away. And not that reading other places' stories is a bad thing. I think it's incredibly important nutrition. But you also have to understand that you're always missing something. You're missing. And in fact, maybe the most important thing is you have to understand that the wisdom of that story is not necessarily suited to the microbiome of where you live. And the problem of Christianity I see is that, well, there are a lot of different problems. One is that it's been completely deranged. Every one of his teachings has been translated so many times we've lost everything. But it's also, you know, he was giving very practical advice to Galilean farmers. That is not necessarily going to teach a um, white Oklahoman like Presbyterian person how to act in relationship with their land. <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy to think it would. And 2,000 years later. Yeah, the removal of context um, and re the removal of place is, I think, at the the heart of a lot of our unease today. Um, we don't know who to greet in the morning as we wake up to the sunrise, as you described. We don't know what's around us. We don't know the myths that informed that land. And something that I've been trying to do in my own ancestry is, you know, the Swiss and Swedish side. So I'm just starting, trying to find stories. And for Switzerland, I have to go back to like, the Celtic Helvetians. I don't even know how you pronounce it. Helvetians? Helvetians? I, yeah, I've read it before and never said it aloud. <laughs> yeah, right. I've never said it aloud either, just still right now. Um, and, and all of these kinds of whispers and traces. Um, but, you know, when the land has become so modified, I do wonder how relevant some of those stories are to highly, highly um, artificial landscapes. And I think that brings me to something that we should talk about, which is this idea of compost. Like, Landscapes have been transformed. They're being transmuted. They're changing. You write a lot about compost. And I would be amiss if in this conversation we didn't touch on 
what what that is for you, something that is transmuting, transforming, decaying. Uh, and as we look out at the world, I think we see a lot of that happening. Well, on a very practical basis, I think that we live in an antibiotic culture that tries to manage by process of negation and sterilization and management and shaving down. And it seems that pretty clear that that doesn't work culturally, medically, <laughs> um, institutionally, um, and that I'm much more interested in processes of addition, of adding enough stuff to a pile that perhaps the bad pathogens, you know, the bad thinkers are overwhelmed and then also get co-opted into more fertile conversations and sprout things they never would have expected to, to sprout. Um, so compost for me is this moment where rot, where um, a slurry of everything, where no one's excluded, but also no one is highlighted, sprouts something new. Um, but also, you know, we live in a culture that's very inside of chronologic time and a very simplistic idea of Darwinism, that everything is moving towards some end, that everything is is progressing towards um, betterment. And as someone who lives in a body that is only going to decay and is in the process of decay at a much higher, much more accelerated rate than most people, I have to begin to think about myself as a compost heap, which is, yeah, I'm very, very noticeably decaying, falling apart, but that that actually might be a very fertile, generative place to be. And that I might not be sprouting stories that I get to live, but I might make myself into good soil, good compost for other people to grow something. And, you know, I think that's how many different indigenous cultures think, which is, you know, how is how am I making myself a good ancestor? How are my decisions opening up the way for other people and beings to live? I think compost works in that way. In another sense, to go back to the very start of your question, I think that we are stuck in this relatively recent Eurocentric idea of climactic ecosystems and the fact that, you know, things are supposed to stay the same. And the truth is that ecosystems and trees are constantly migrating and changing and invasive keystone species are coming in to clear up pollution and shift things. And the climate is always changing. You know, it's changing in a way that's very human driven right now, but it has always changed. And um, I think that compost, not, not that compost, but, but letting things um, decay and change and intermingle is a way of creating more resilience in the face of unpredictable changes. And that stories from 300 years ago from our ancestors aren't going to help us to live in cities where we're breathing in smog and we have microplastics in our bloodstream. But the truth is that storytelling until very, until pretty much 2000 years ago was considered to be oral, adaptive, and always changing, relational. It happened in the moment, in the connective tissue between two people, that the, the breath that also had spores and, and pheromones and funk in it. And so I think that we can compose stories by saying, okay, we can't get rid of our Christian upbringing, but can we mulch it with all sorts of other things to see if it can sprout something that would help us live in this very culpable, polluted, chaotic time? What kind of stuff do you see that that's doing that? That's mulching and, and bringing out some of this more, uh, I don't know, the, this new kind of matter? Well, I actually think, interestingly enough, that Zoom and Skype 
Um, and that I, I think that there's a lot of demonization of techno technology and actually those narratives often become very ableist because then it's saying like all the people who are alive because of technology should be dead. Like I'm like, you know, you've got to be more nuanced about this. You know, I am alive because of technology. Um, and my career is also alive because of these anarchic fungal connections I made outside of dominant paradigms through, you know, the mycelial hyphal intelligence of the web. And so I actually see one of the ways that stories are cross-pollinating and changing each other is um, via these connections that aren't bounded so by um, our narrow cultural ideas of who gets to be inside of a conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think on that point, the who gets to be inside of a conversation, there was there was a line in one of your writings um, that I think you wrote quite recently, um, or maybe I mixed it up, but you wrote a piece recently called The Animate Everything. Um, it's an old uh, one, but yeah, it got published recently. It's an old one that got yeah. republished. Yeah, because I feel like I saw it a while ago. And you said, I'm more interested in ensoilment than ensoilment. Um, and I'm taking this from another piece. I want my spirituality to have fur, pheromones, and spunk. Now, what I like about this is your definition of, of animism and what it means to be alive in a world that's alive is kind of wild and it's a little bit more nuanced than like, oh, the rivers are sentient and you know, the, um, there is a deep intelligence to our planet, which is true. Um, but I would love for you to speak about what animism and animacy is to you and, and the ways that you um, maybe practice it. Mm. So I believe in an animism that's kind of like a pluralist pantheology where everything is strung together and connected, but not everything is connected to everything and where everything is alive, but everything is alive differently. Some things sting and prick, some things cahoot and collaborate, some things are symbiotic, some things kill each other. Um, and it's that, that incredible melange of difference that actually brings meaning into emergence um and that every it's not an animism of homogenizing universalism which is what i see a lot of these days and feel very suspicious of what would that be i think it's a lot of this re-enchantment this very simplistic idea that everything is alive every stone is alive you know i was reading this incredible quote let me see if i can find it um i think it's one of my favorite things i was reading recently about animism and it it felt like it was a good antidote to the kind of Western idea of, yeah. So Catherine Keller, uh, no, no, it's A. Irving Hallowell, who's an anthropologist, I believe, was writing an Ojibwa ontology behavior and worldview and spent a long time with them actually like trying to understand in their language what their experience was of peopleness, of, of peoples. And he asked an elder about stones and he asked it from this very simplistic idea. Like, so like, what does it mean that everything is alive? And the elder said, since stones, oh, yeah, so he says, since stones are grammatically animate, I once asked an old man, are all stones we see about us here alive? And the old man reflected a long while and said, no, but some are. <laughs> and that felt really powerful, which is that it's that kind of, it's that bumptious and determinate quality that's more interesting, that we can't quantify this. We can't graph it. We can't learn it. It's a more, it's a more of a, a reciprocal vein that we open up, a conversation that we enter where we risk completely changing our paradigm. Um, 
Yeah. And so, so my animism is very interested in contamination and in, in the ways that we're porous and, and that, that, that porosity can kill us and it can also weave us into multi-species assemblages. Yeah. And we can only, we can only belong in, inside of those anyway, right? It's, it's actually just becoming conscious of what you already are. Um, and I really like how in, how in your definition of animism and, and, um, the plurality of what we are, you kind of take down the divine feminine in a way that I really appreciate because this, uh, you know, I think as two women speaking here today about this kind of stuff, it's like this term divine feminine has become part of, uh, it's been, I guess, adopted by some of the new age spiritual circles that I have occasionally found myself in. And it's very um, performative and it's very... Um, archetypal and oh the divine feminine and you have to come in wearing a white gown and you have to smell like copal and you must be wearing some kind of feather and I resonate with what you've written and said about it which is like for me the the feminine is also the masculine and it's also everything else and it's very messy and tangled and wild and feral and muddy and bloody and weird and and this 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 we're doing a disservice I think to the feminine by trying to put it in this box in the same way that I know your latest book is about what we've done to the masculine. And it's so cool that as a, as a female, you're writing a book about the masculine. People be like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what she has to say about my gender. But we, but we put ourselves inside of these weird archetypes, I think, when we only belong to a human story. And I think that when we start to look at the, all of the other forms of life around us and all the other biologies, I'm like, okay, what does it mean to be a, a, a woman um, in relationship to this this tree in front of me, what does it mean for me to be a woman when I'm in relationship with Carl? Like, what is gender and, and and sexuality in the context of the planet, which is where we live? And for me, that's the really like interesting part. It's like what happens when we take our genders out into the world, into the animal kingdoms, and we're not just like humans trying to perform for other humans some idea of what like we should be as a sex. I know. I mean, I'm reading a great compilation of essays right now called queer ecology showing how we how we graft our cultural dualisms onto complex tangled ecosystems and pretend like our ideas of gender like map onto any other species other than our cultural idea of what a species is and in fact even the idea of species is relatively recent and incredibly fragile and contentious within biology and tied to racial issues um so even the idea of a species line is well up for debate right now <laughs> wait say a little bit more about say a little bit more about how we put gender into ecosystems a great example is that there were these scientists who were studying seagulls and they said the seagulls were engaging they must be polluted like they must be experiencing some kind of environmental toxin because they were displaying aberrant incorrect sexual behavior because all the female seagulls were having sex with each other and they weren't really having any sex with the males and it turned out the whole study the whole framework of the study was was incredibly biased and problematic and this was like a pretty mainstream well funded accepted study because actually that turned out to be the main reproductive not, not the main reproductive the main actual activity of the seagulls and it wasn't because of environmental um, toxins it was what they did and it wasn't about reproduction and we couldn't explain it as an evolutionary adaption under our you know anthropocentric idea of how that happens it was what they did <laughs> and a lot of the ways we characterize sex that isn't 
what we humans think of as proper sex is as deviant sex inside animal kingdoms. But then if you actually look at the type of sex animals are having, most of it is deviant sex. So it would seem that our categories of how these things happen, be it sex and gender, which are both different. Um, but even gender, I mean, like we try and like gender fungi and they have 36,000 different modes of gender, you know, that really doesn't fit into our male, female um, paradigm. And also these birds, I could go on and on. No, no, no. I mean, I love it. There are birds that have, um, forget which type of bird and maybe I'll look it up and send it to you so you can include it, but they have like four different types of gender. They have like dominant males, males who also are female sometimes, you know? (laughs) Um, so there's so many different, it's really only in our very narrow idea of what's respectful, our very Victorian idea of what, you know, gender or sex is supposed to look like that, um, that these ideas even float. They, they just are not even that popular inside of most, most other species. There's this the the deviant sex. It's like I want to participate to that. That sounds great. And you know what? The seagulls. Maybe they looked at the. Maybe they looked at the male seagulls. They're like, no, you guys are just hotter. Like I'd rather let's just keep it in the family. Let's stay here. The mountain goats that are considered the strongest and are like given the most social credit are the ones that have homosexual sex with each other. And the ones that are shunned and like and are smaller are the ones that actually mate with the females. Yes. I mean, what does that do to notions of like human, like divine feminine and masculine? Like and and I and I love that teaching from the animals. It's like be a lot more fluid and queer and weird in your own in your own sexual choices. Like <laughs> And that there's there's no I mean, I, I also one thinker inside of this amazing um anthology was saying that no animal is gay or straight. They're all everything. You know, they're just going to do exactly what they want. They're not going to follow some kind of rule book. And and no animal is also, this is something that I think about a lot, which is a lot of studies of pollution are very focused on sex change and not on the actual health of the animals they're studying, on their hearts, on their vasculature, on their actual ability to survive. They're very scared and interested in sex change. And in fact, a lot of funding gets um, directed towards studies of amphibious sex change because that's what we're worried about. Because that's what we're worried about. We're worried about how our pollutants are going to change our hormones and our sex. So what we're, we're funding is studies into the sex changes rather than the actual health experience <laughs> and viability of these species. We're studying their sex changes rather than thinking about their sex changes as being symptomatic and adaptive to these changing situations. So we problematize changing sex and changing um, sexual activity as being problematic, and we also over-focus on it at the expense of actually taking care of the health of these beings. Yeah, it's such a narrow lens to view being on. I mean, just in, just in general. Um, this made me remember saying you mentioned the beginning of the call, and I want to get there before we before we end. Um, you, you shared about the woodchuck as someone who was uh, very still kind of alive for you in terms of your relationship to other species. But you said that there was someone else who was also more more kind of current in your mind and just wanting to give them space in this conversation before we sign off. Thank you. I'm actually looking out the window to see if they're going to arrive for this event. They've been doing that. So I live right on a river, well, the confluence of two rivers, and there are a lot of bald eagles that nest nearby. And 
I have somehow for, for some reason ended up living in a lot of places where bald eagles populate, but I go in and having encount in and out of having encounters with them. And they tend to show up at moments in my life where I'm about to move or go through some huge transition. Um, and what they do is that they'll like really show up. They'll like fly very close overhead. And then one time I, there was an eagle tussle above me and so many feathers flew down, like tufts of the white feathers from their heads from like, it was a real fight. And I, it was really intense. It felt like being struck by lightning. Like the feathers floated down. And recently I've been having the experience of them flying overhead at moments where I've been having key key thoughts about changing my life and about what comes next. And they'll fly over and they have these switchblade wings. They're incredibly decisive. For me, they always say like, straight ahead, keep moving. We, you know, hold on to our talons. We're going to fly you into the next phase. So for me, I'm, I'm trying to listen to them when I think about how to move into the next phase of my life professionally and personally. And that's one of the sort of symbols of the eagle, right? The, the very sh- like a uh, sharp and keen view from so far up that they're scanning everything and then waiting, 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 uh, and then they catch the thermal vents and then they spin up and they 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 rise with what the winds are telling them to do. It's a powerful teacher. I saw them mate once. It was one of the highlights of my life. Um, it was the craziest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. You know, we do not understand sex. We're not having sex like that. Are they, are they doing it while they're while they're flying? No, what they they do it. It's it's almost like a. You should look it up on YouTube. Um, they they lock talons and they spin up into the sky. So they both fly extraordinarily high, and then they lock talons talons and they drop. They don't fly. They drop out of the sky and they mate as they drop. And what it looks like if you don't know what it is, is you look like they're having a fight where they're both going to die. And then at the last possible moment, they split apart and fly up. And then they do it again. They usually do it a couple of times. It's wild. It's like a crazy ride. That's kind of like their, uh, their equivalent of like BDSM or something like, let's wait until the very last moment if we're not going to die. <laughs> it's like, talk about like getting your thrills, just like plunging through the sky while you're making love. That's, yeah, that's a good lesson from the eagle. It's giving you that one too. <laughs> yes, so, yeah. We'll see how that one plays out. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, Sophie, this has been such a delight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I've absolutely loved this conversation and um, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch very soon. Thank you so much, Alexa. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks time where we'll be talking finance for nature. I would love to hear from you and please reach out to me on the website lifeworld.earth where you can also find all of the show notes and an awesome open source library ranging from everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon.